0: Job.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. This is kind of cool. Tim. This is the first time I think that I'm actually gonna say stuff. That maybe sounds like I've talked to a lawyer. The oh. following is not intended as investment advice, and don't I? I think I have to disclose. And the Chuck Yates 2008 Family Trust is an owner of AMPT or something like that. I own a hundred shares, and we appreciate that. Thank it you. Did. All right, introduce yourself and tell my mother who you are because my mom's watching. Sure. So my name is Tim Kramer, and I am the president
0: and CEO of a company called CNIC, which stands for Carbon Neutral Investment Company. And what we've done is we've created an ETF and our tagline is the electrification of America.
1: Cool. So, okay, real quick, just uh, to make sure I understand, ETF, publicly traded, New York Stock Exchange somewhere. Got it? Yeah, the easiest way to think about it is most people are familiar with mutual funds and an
0: ETF is just simply a mutual fund that trades on the New York Stock Exchange. And the reason everything is kind of switching right now over from mutual funds onto ETFs is because mutual funds usually only price at the end of the day, while well, ETFs are priced throughout the whole day, and you also have like you know tighter bid ask spreads, and you've got just less fees. So pretty much everything right now is transitioning from a mutual fund over to an ETF, an ETF
1: exchange traded, exchange traded fund. fund. Yep, yep. Sorry and, about that. and no, no, and most of the time, as I understand, the ETFs trade based on some index, right? Or they can. So you'll have two kinds. You've got active
0: and passive. And so the active ones, well, let me back it up. The passive ones will almost always be linked to an index. And what they try to do is they try to replicate the index and the performance of the index. Now, the active ones, some of them will use an index as a benchmark, and they just try to beat that. And so if you just think about, you know, like the S&P, if you look, since we're, we're talking to your mom, you've got people that say, okay, I want this S&P fund and it's got low fees and it mirrors the s and I'm good. And then they'll say, well, look at this fund, it's it's an S&P and it's actively managed and it's got some better returns and so maybe I want that.
1: So there's the passive and the active aspect, two two different flavors of the thing. Okay, got it. Um, and this is uh, kind of cool, I almost feel like I'm taking advantage of my podcast stat- status of, dude, come on to the podcast and all this. Yeah. Because I want to figure out what I bought. I bought. I bought 100 shares because you and I were introduced by a mutual friend, yep. and you seem like a really cool guy. Um, tell me what I bought.
0: Sure. So you bought 100 shares of Ampt, and Ampt is an ETF that is linked to electricity futures. So to kind of give you the backstory on this, what happens is electricity is the most consumed commodity on a retail notional basis in the U.S., but up until now it wasn't in any mutual fund it wasn't in any etf there was no index there was nothing so what we did is we created an index using electricity futures that are traded on ice the intercontinental exchange and then we pair those with carbon offsets which are also traded on ice the intercontinental exchange and so the portfolio of electricity futures and the carbon offsets is carbon neutral And we got it certified as carbon neutral and it qualifies for the SFDR eight, which is a European standard, et cetera. So we've got these futures that are all paired off. And then what happens is those futures are what
1: the underlying asset is for those hundred shares that you bought. Okay. Cause the thing I found really interesting when we went and, and got that drink and we got introduced and we were talking about it is one of the things that became like wildly clear to me and it took getting fired and publicly humiliated and all that good stuff. But, you know, a month or two after I'm kind of kicked out of the club, out of the game, I'm sitting there going, okay, if I'm an institution, I want to own some oil because oil is pretty Mm -hmm. important to the economy. And when you think about it, all these institutions were getting their oil exposure through private equity, oil and gas type stuff. Yep. And then I would sit there and think about, okay, well, was i truly just delivering commodity exposure to these institutions no i was like leveraging these portfolio companies oh, yeah. i was drilling wells i was doing all this sort of stuff and i haven't had the like the heart or the or the, or, or the time to go back and actually kind of measure vis-a-vis versus the commodity but there seemed to be a pretty big disconnect there.
0: Oh, huge disconnect! Because you're talking about these LPs inside of the private equity shops, and they're owning these these companies just like you talked about. So they you got to pay management fees. You've got accounting irregularities. You've got equipment. The equipment might break. There's all sorts of other things that take away from the direct commodity exposure. And heck, half these guys hedge. So you're thinking, wow, look at this. The cri- the price of crude oil doubled. I bet this you know private equity holding doubled. Oh no, we hedged. We're, we're flat. Yeah.
1: No, that's no, that's yeah. that's exactly right. And and the the horror stories could probably go on even even longer through that. But you know, kind of peeling it back, then you say, Well, gosh, why weren't these folks just trading on the NYMEX and getting oil exposure? And then you go talk to a few of them. It's like, well, why were you invested in us instead of just, you know, doing futures for oil? and it's like oh my god you want me to have a mark to mark uh mark to mark uh daily thing to walk in and tell my board that oh by the way i need 10 million dollars cuz i got to post more margin cuz we went wrong but don't worry amazon's ripping because of cheap oil you know and so i f- i don't think i fully appreciated till i was out of the game just how much if you're the CIO, you think you're getting commodity exposure. You're really not. It's a bastardized kind of way of yeah. doing it.
0: And it's it's just a different type of investment vehicle. It's not, you know, an indictment on the private equity group at all. But what their model I'll is- I'll indict them. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> nice. Maybe,
1: maybe just one. Okay. <laughs> no,
0: no, no, no. I'm kidding. But I mean, what their investment model is, they'll, they'll say it's kind of like three sentences. Like we buy companies, we take them private and make them better, and then we sell them back out again in a profit. So that's what they do. So they're not really concerned, overly concerned with the commodity exposure. They're trying to do the whole gamut of getting the exposure plus fixing the company, plus looking for the exit multiple. And so when they're doing that, it's a much, much different profile than just getting the pure commodity exposure.
1: And I think what happened, at least uh, in, in oil and gas, is let's go historically and let's call it pre-2000. I mean, it really was oil and natural gas – or really oil, was the input to the economy. And when oil prices yeah. went up, you hit a recession. So it was almost oh, your yeah. defensive measure of, I need exposure to this commodity. Then, you know, the shale revolution came along and there was an alpha story there. Hey, we can drill horizontally, mm-hmm. fracking, we can create these outsized returns. Unfortunately, a lot of money went into that. And right. As we all know, funds flow, the more money that goes in, yeah. returns usually get re- reduced. Um, and I think we've kind of potentially see people coming back to that. The So that was one kind of just aha moment I had of being outside going, oh, my gosh. So there's this imperfect alliance, if you will, between I need a commodity exposure and how people are actually doing it. The one big glaring hole, though, is when you sit around and you talk about artificial intelligence and Bitcoin mining, the Internet and all this sort of stuff. You're like, well, power is going to be what oil was. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So to your direct <clears throat> example here, if we take a look at um, Texas, right? So they call it ERCOT in the, in the power uh, grid. Uh, data centers in 22 were about 2 to 3% of the overall electrical load in Texas. And by 2030, that prediction is supposed to be up to as high as 40% for the reasons that you talked about. But that's just the data centers. If you take a look at like electric vehicles. So the US has a stated goal, and the manufacturers are all falling in line with this, that by 2030, no new cars can be combustion engine. They want them all to be electric. But then you've got individual states that are taking twists and turns on that. So for instance, California, they passed a tighter emission standard recently so that I believe it's by 2026, Jeeps won't meet that. And then if you pick up the paper and you look, New York State, No gas stoves you're not allowed to hook up to the the gas infrastructure anymore all has to be electric if you pick up the paper two weeks ago there was an article about the colorado river running dry and oh by the way that affects seven million people that use hydroelectric power off of that and so there's just so much that's already electric like we talked about and that's only going to get bigger and better and then to your point about you know the crude oil natural gas uh BP puts out a really interesting research piece where they talk about what the, and they put it out like once a year, and they give projections for what the consumption is going to be. And they've got natural gas consumption from 22 peaking and dropping off by almost 80%. And I think crude oil is about the same. Now they do different scenarios and they say this one is a path to net green. This one is you know the slower path. This one is, oh, if we abandon going green, we increase. But Pretty much everyone out there is taking a look at, and you don't want to say that crude and natty are going to zero, but their consumption is going to go down drastically and it's going to be replaced
1: by electricity. Yeah. No, that's, that's, uh, that's crazy. And I, and, you know, this doesn't even get talked about. And I don't know if you and I have talked about it the couple of times we've gotten together. The Xbox network. Yeah. I mean kids sitting around playing video games that is exponential. I mm-hmm. mean my uh, my girlfriend's son what are you doing <laughs> playing FIFA, you know, and they're all online, they're all talking to I mean that consumes a massive amount of mm-hmm. power oh, and yeah. no one talks about it. Right. Yeah. It's it's just crazy and if we're going to embed artificial intelligence in every, in everything, oh yeah. I mean I think I think our use of power estimates Vastly understated. Exactly. That's part of our whole thesis
0: is that the demand is massively understated for all the reasons we talked about. But we also think that the supply is overstated. So think about this for a second. Right now, you've got coal plants that are retiring because of emission standards and because there might not be economic, but you've also got groups that just won't touch it. So you've got most of your major banks won't do anything with financing a coal plant. They can't get letters of credit. They can't get DNO insurance. They're just pretty much dead in the water. So the coal plants are retiring and they're retiring at a faster rate than people thought they were. And so you're replacing that, supposed to be replacing that with wind and solar. But the first problem with that is the the, uh, interconnection queue, what you had to do to kind of get in and develop these plants. It used to take you, we'll say, three to five years to get something up and running. And now there's such a backlog that it looks more like it's around five to eight years. So it's clogged for the first part. The second problem with it is if you take a look, the U.S. has a stated goal of being 85% renewable generation by 2030 and 100% renewable by 2035. If everything in the current development queue gets built and gets built on time, we're only going to be like 48% renewable by 2030. So we're nowhere near where we need to be. So we're not going to catch up. So you're retiring the, the emitters faster than you thought you were, and you're not replacing them as fast as you thought you
1: would with the renewable stuff. Interesting. I didn't realize it was that bad. Okay.
0: Now, oh, well, there's another problem with it too. And you're starting to see that here in Texas, right? And that is when you replace the coal and, to some extent, these natural gas plants and replace them with wind and solar, they're not dispatchable. So you can't control the output. Like you get the wind and solar when they want to give it to you. It's, it is what it is. And so you're now seeing some interesting opportunities like yesterday um, in, here in Texas. So the hourly power price, when you took a look, it was you know, 20, 30 bucks, which is fine. And then all of a sudden when the wind doesn't show up or the solar doesn't show up, you spiked up to over a thousand dollars a megawatt hour yesterday in certain hours. That's because you haven't had the ability to, you just can't dispatch it. And there's no, there's not enough batteries around to take up the slack. So not only are you overstating the supply and understating the demand, but
1: what you're doing is you're increasing the volatility of the underlying. Oh, shoot. Yep yeah no that may, that makes a lot of sense, and uh I don't think i fully grasp that. I mean, winter storm yuri, yeah, hit me in the face, but uh all that, I don't think I'd grasp that and um so what is actually in the index so, so sure you've you've got this index, and tell me how what's in there.
0: Sure. So, what we do is, is there are, just like there are futures that trade every, you know, for all the different months for like 60 months now on natural gas and crude oil and wheat and corn and soybeans and gold, et cetera. The Intercontinental Exchange, which owns the New York Stock Exchange, they've got futures on electricity. And so, for the index, we've taken uh, different spots in the country. So, we take uh, NEPAL, which is New England, and we take New York, and then we take PJM, which stands for Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland. And then we take ERCOT, which is Texas. We take MISO, which is the the Midwest of the US. And then we take California. So we take those six different locations. And once a year, what we do is we take what the average annual consumption of electricity is, and then we pro rata assign weights to those different hubs. And then we take EPA data, publicly available data, And it tells you what the carbon footprint is for each one of those locations. And then we buy the correct amount of carbon offsets and put it together so that the whole thing is carbon neutral. Now, what we did is we created this index and then we literally gave it to ICE. So ICE is the index administrator. And that's because if you got, you know, Chuck and Tim's power index, nobody seems to care. But if you have ICE on as the power index administrator and the calculation agent, that ends a certain amount of credibility to what you're doing. Gotcha.
1: Gotcha. So- so, okay, so those are the points. Mm-hmm. And how long's the contracts? Right, good question. Under, so, under the. Sure. Yeah. So, we talked
0: about the, the volatility of this stuff. And so, what happens is when you do a normal commodity index, we can, you know, almost like True Tracker, but not quite. Um, normal commodity indexes, they'll buy the prompt month. And then, as that prompt futures month starts to like roll off or expire, they'll roll that to the next month.
1: Well, and if you think back- and The big to, example of that's USO and oil. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're yeah. The, so they're basically, I mean, they they when they got so much money and they could do more things, they started buying further out. But, right. But before they got into all that, before minus $37 oil, it was basically, we just buy the prompt
0: month. Yeah. And so if you think back to your B-School days at Rice, it's the whole F equals E to the RT, well, you know, the whole forward spot cash carry thing, right? And so- most of the commodities under normal cir- normal circumstances are in um, contango, which is basically the current month is cheaper, and the next month is higher, and the next month's a little higher, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Well, you have problems with electricity, or I should say opportunities with electricity, because electricity is not storable, and it's highly seasonal. So if we look to doing the index and just doing prompt months, the problem is- you're gonna have like right now, um, August contract for Texas is trading almost 200 bucks. And the September contract is trading, I think it's right now it's about, we'll say 80 bucks, right? And so there's such a difference in prices and it's not storable that if you had to roll these things, you just have these big gaps and just didn't make any sense. So what we're doing is we're doing a 12 month continuous strip. So as August of 23, rolls off the board, we take that and put and buy August 24. So that you really don't have to deal with the seasonality and it eliminates the volatility. And it gives you a chance to play the backwardation of the curve because most of the power curves are backwardated. So what happens is you've got to disconnect, what we say is between the financial markets and the fundamental markets. So financially you have the private equity guys like we talked about, and they're trying to build all this wind and solar that we talked about. And in order to do that and in order to get their returns, they have to put leverage on it. Not a problem. Leverage gives you returns. The banks that let you leverage this, they say, okay, well, if I'm going to lend you money, I want to make sure you can pay me back. So I want you to hedge. And so there's artificial pressure on the back end of the curve here because these guys are selling just so they can get these deals done. And so what happens is the banks will say, okay, this is fair market value, but I need to discount that for the volume and I got to discount that for my cost of capital and i got to discount that for a credit charge and I want to make a profit. So the prices at which these guys are transacting, they backwardate the curves. So by doing this 12 month strip where, you know, most people with the commodity index have what's called negative roll yield, where they lose a little bit of money as they got to roll. We've got positive roll yield because almost every one of the different spots that we talk about in the index, is in backwardation.
1: Yeah, that's that's the one thing I learned when I messed around with the commodity uh, ETFs is if you're buying at fifty and you're just doing prompt month and the next one is fifty three, well, yeah, they they realize fifty and then they buy at fifty three, yeah. so the ETF is flat. Yep, even though you're like, no, price went from fifty to fifty three. I should be up, you know, six percent and that's that's the the name is so two questions on this this is interesting uh so i understand why producers of electricity because of why you laid out they've got leverage they've got insurance they've got private equity guys that are scared to death i get why they want to why they want to hedge who's on the other side of that trade i mean is a and we'll just use Google because they're big and they use lots of power. Is Google on the other side of that trade two well, years out, three years out?
0: So typically what happens is, and this just goes back to kind of like, you know, textbook economics. So John Maynard Keynes or Holbrook Workings, the guys that you studied again back when you're you know getting your MBA or ICE. And they talk about the term structure of these curves. And it's basically the producers are the ones that take action. Okay, so they're the ones that have to sell because they have to build the assets that produce the commodities and they need to get the leverage they need to sell. So the phenomena is, and the academics back it up, that the producers are the ones that lead this with the selling. The other side of the transaction is typically right now, usually your banks and they'll warehouse the risk. And they'll do it two ways. Number one is they get it at like such a low price because they put all these discounts in and they compensate themselves for the risk that they're comfortable wearing it. And the second thing they do is they'll correlatively hedge it. It's so like, okay, you know, we got all this power. Maybe I'll sell a basket of crude, natty and a couple of other things. And I'll just kind of warehouse the risk. And, you know, if I put this hedge on and I made $60 million on the hedge and the dirty hedges aren't, don't quite work out, so I only made 40 million. Well, I made 40 million. So they're okay doing that. And then the, you'll see some of the, of the c and the commercial industrial guys come out and they'll do like longer term deals. So uh, Google will do them. Um, you know, we've seen uh, some of the airlines will come out and say, hey, I want to buy 10 years worth of power. Different uh, organizations like that will step up and take them off of the banks. And so the bank acts
1: almost like a credit intermediary for this when they do that. And my senses, and I'll make this up because I know nothing about it, <laughs> is... That's happening way more today than it was three years ago, way more three years ago than it was six years ago and on. Is this, yeah. this this feels more way more recent. I right, mean, right. Yeah.
0: So you didn't really have the power market start to trade um, actively until we'll say late 90s, early 2000. Okay. And then, you know, it took a while for people to kind of get their heads around it because if I say a barrel of crude oil, you kind of know what that looks like. But if I say 500 megawatt hours of electricity, you're going to start Googling that and see what that is. So people had to get, you know, kind of an education process about it. Then once they got that and they saw what, you know, how that impacted their, what their economics were, then they started to pay attention to it a little bit more. Gotcha. Gotcha.
1: Okay. So... Don't have a lot of people necessarily on the other side of the trade, but it, it's growing. Right. I always hate to get too far away from fundamentals. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I get that things spike and their runs and their bubbles and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, I, I truly think something has to come back to rational economics. If I'm thinking through your index and you're using kind of year contracts that roll mm-hmm. – um, it's a way to grossly simplify it. The longer term contract, the fundamental person is saying, How much power will we need? How much supply do we need? Uh, power is going to be 75. And then the front month is, it gets to the points we've been talking about. How much supply do we have? Yeah, And it's driven by weather today like never before because it's wind, it's, yeah. is it sunny? And you kind of have that, that stuff going on more near-term and longer-term. If if my fundamental view of the world's right, is that the way to think yeah. about it? Well, it's it's pretty accurate. So what okay. we say
0: is this, there's a disconnect on the longer-dated financial markets and the shorter-dated fundamental markets. So the longer data markets that you're describing, that's where the producers are selling and the banks are you know, getting their, putting in their correct margin and, and uh, safety margins, et cetera. And so that doesn't really reflect the fundamentals. That just reflects where you can get a transaction done. So that reflects the financials. But then at a certain point in time, as you get closer to where the actual electrons need to flow into your house, and that's where the fundamentals take over. So it's what's the weather, what are the other unit outages? What are the supply constraints? What's like the marginal molecule right now? So we think that there's an arbitrage that exists right now on the longer dated financials versus the shorter
1: dated fundamentals. So you've you got it pretty much right. Okay. Because that that's where I was going. Because yeah. I, I, I do believe that I, I get your point that this, you know, producers have to do this. This is where you can get a trade done. Yeah. The banks are stepping in, warehousing it, and they'll, mm-hmm. make, they'll make big, frothy premiums for, in effect, providing insurance, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, at that point. But at some point, really smart, sophisticated money gets in and says, it's ridiculous. We should be buying that. And to some degree, it's got to get somewhat close to reality. I mean, we can't have huge arbitrages forever.
0: So you're right about that. Um, But what happens is if you want to do that, you don't need to pay fair value. You just got to run faster than the bear. He's got to be like, you know, two cents higher than than, than the other guy. And so that I think is going to take a while to kind of work its way out of the marketplace. Okay. Okay. And, And also too, if you put that position on, you need to warehouse that for a while. So that takes up a lot of credit. And it's going to take time for you to recognize those longer data returns, which is kind of why we did the index and spread it out with the different regions and the different tenors.
1: Yeah. Because, I I mean, just to tell the audience, just to be transparent about it is, I truly believe we're, like I was saying earlier, vastly understating the amount of power we're going to need. Mm -hmm. Because this is being pushed at us by the government. I mean, historically, the government used to say things like, we want less emissions, we will incentivize that market. Y'all go figure that out. The IRA stepped in and said, we want electric vehicles, period. Yep. You know, I mean, Chevron, that's great. You guys have figured out lower emission gas. You don't get the credits. Only electric vehicles get the credits. And so I think there is a, a top down pressure by the government happening for more power then I think we fully appreciate.
0: Oh yeah, so right now I think we've spent about 15 billion of the IRA and there's like another 700 billion to go. But the, the silos and the, the bureaucracy is such that I believe the government had to create its own tiger team
1: inside of the government to get stuff done faster. So it fits exactly with what you're saying. As a quick aside, have I told you my tinfoil hat thing on electric vehicles? I truly believe this. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and say it. You can roll your eyes. I mean, we're getting enough friends now. You can roll your eyes and say you're stupid or whatever. I honestly don't. Because, okay. If you go to Volvo's website, Mm -hmm. they did a detailed study on an electric vehicle. What is the carbon footprint of that versus an internal combustion engine? The ICE, we know exactly what the internal combustion engine is. We've been making them for 125 years. And we've got that down. Truly, really knows what the carbon footprint of an, an electric vehicle is. They're relatively new. So, Volvo, 150 pages. I mean, it's pretty detailed. And the punchline to this, and I tried to read 150 pages, but I got through most of it. Okay. But basically, what the punchline is is if the way the world generates electricity today, I think it's about 85,000 or 90,000 kilometers that um, is the breakover. An electric vehicle is better at 90,000 kilometers than the internal combustion engine because they went through, hey, we're mining, we're manufacturing, there are petroleum-based products in the electric vehicles, et cetera. We have to charge it and we burn coal in some places to charge. So, you know, they they went through, they had they had a methodology that seemed pretty thorough. I don't know if I agree with every little bit of it, but at least they did. If you charge just like Europe generates electricity, and gener- Europe's, I think the the furthest along in terms of the renewable path. Yeah, I think it's like sixty five thousand kilometers. So at the end of the day, okay, that's good, but sixty five kilometers, sixty five thousand kilometers is still. Four years, so
0: five years. I didn't read that. That's interesting. I, I'd ask you, did it mention having to replace the
1: battery packs at a certain? Mileage? I'd have to go back and look and see what they did for that. And I, I think one of the criticisms of the study, as I recall, is that they didn't do enough on disposal yeah. of batteries. And so, so there's you can punch you can punch around the edges and, and dig into all that. But at the end of the day, I mean, we're still talking breakovers of four to six years. And you know, okay, most cars run 20 years. Okay, so that is better. We're literally gonna spend trillions and trillions of dollars in the United States to be able to do this. We've got to upgrade grids, chargers, all that. Oh yeah. So here's the tinfoil hat thing. Okay. I truly believe this, I really do. (laughs) I truly believe this. How do we pay for roads these days? Dollars, uh, cents per gallon of gasoline, right? So you go fill up, I think 50 some odd cents is going to various taxes yeah. per gallon, something sure. like that, right? So when you're not buying gasoline anymore, it's going to become very easy to sell, hey. Oh, you I know where you're to, going. This, yes. is,
0: this is genius. And I
1: believe this. You need to pay us cents per mile you drive to pay for the roads. And people will go, oh, okay, that makes sense now. I get that. And by the way, we need to track you. And so I honestly think the government's doing this so they can track our movements. Because right now, we're all tracked by this, right? But at least the government's got to go get a court order to be able to, to look at this to see where you've been. If, they're just no, if they normalize, hey, driving along, you got this thing tracking you and you're paying cents per mile that you drive and all, they're going to know exactly where we're driving. I truly believe this.
0: There, there's something to be said for that revenue gap for the infrastructure maintenance. I think you're onto it. I'm not quite sure how they're going to fill that, but I think you, I never thought about that. That's pretty clever.
1: Well, and, and, and I, and I think it's, I think it's going to just be normalized. People are going to go, Oh, okay. Yeah. That's how we're going to do it. And the government is suddenly going to have all this information. Now I'm, I'm a big libertarian. I really am. And I wear a tinfoil hat periodically, but I truly think they're going to be able to track us wherever we drive. And that's actually scary to me. Supposedly within the IRA, there's a 25 or $30 million pilot program on this for tracking electric vehicles. You signed up for that, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, didn't mean to, uh, no, that's to interesting. get us off the, the track. That's actually really interesting. Yeah. So, so potentially the index, uh, as you've laid it out to me to make sure I understand, is we basically got different regions of the United States. We have longer dated contracts. Yep. And so potentially, if I fundamentally wanted to make a bet that we're going to be under supplied power in the future, the index, in effect, kind of tracks that and is not so much tracking the day-to-day volatility, no. here's what happened in the weather, et no, no.
0: So before you get into what they call the spot market or the cash market or like, you know, inside of the month, we get out of the contracts, the index rolls them before that contract comes up like that. So there's none of that volatility and we spread it out over the diff- six different regions. So you're like, you're really hot right now in Texas and Texas is, is volatile. But up in uh, the mid Atlantic right now, the weather is actually very mild. And so when you average all those things in, you're getting the overall fundamental appreciation that we talked about, and it really reduces the volatility. So right now, this power index is less volatile than the Bloomberg commodity index. Okay. Yep. Oh, interesting. Yep. And not only, I mean, th- this is if you wanted to express a view, which, you know, the electrification of America, and it's like, here we go, there's a chance to play this supply demand imbalance. But also, too, like CPI came out yesterday, month in and month out. Electricity is 2.5% of CPI. So, I mean, if I'm a pensioner and endowment, why wouldn't I have just, you know, 2.5% of my AUM pegged into this?
1: Because that's where, I was, that's where I, was, I was going with it. Because if we look back, you know, in history, you wanted to own oil because oil was the input. Yeah. I mean, you just said it's two and a half percent. I'm actually surprised it's that low. That's the
0: direct one. So if you take a look and comb through all those pages, right, it's like, oh, this is the direct contribution of electricity, is it's 2.51. And it varies by like 0.02 or something. Everywhere. Right. But there's the indirect component, which you don't see. So, you know, pick an example. Okay, there's the, you know, tomatoes at the grocer, right? Well, that grocer has to use electricity and they miss those things. There's all sorts of other inputs where it's indirect that goes through there. So it's a lot higher than that direct 2.5, but the direct one we point to is
1: 2.5. Okay, yeah, okay. So that makes, that, that seems yeah. that, because I would have said directionally, not knowing yeah. actual numbers, I would have said, we're gonna use way more power um. Then we think we're going to use supply. It's going to be harder to mm-hmm. to just. It's hard. It's crap to get things permitted. And yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's like back in the the dot com bubble. Mm-hmm. These guys would come on and say, "Oh, we're going to sign up this many people for our our modem through modems to to get our service, and we're going to have twenty billion dollars of EBITDA a year." And you're like going, "That's literally." 12 people signing up every three seconds i mean just plugging it in takes longer right. than that yeah yep. so i think i think being able to buy the uh, build the supply is just gonna be hard i mean it's really really hard and then well I, i'm not to cut your thought yeah, off but on the, on
0: the supply part think about this too so like we talked about with the wind and solar right it, when it doesn't show up and if that's all you have, you have a problem. And so you need a lot more batteries too, which goes back to the mining and the things that you talked about in the cars and what's the, what's the overall footprint with that. But New England came out and said, okay, if we really want to have a reliable grid and it's all renewable, you need to have like 400% more wind and solar lined up than you actually think your demand is going to be. So that if it doesn't show up, you know, if it don't, only 10% shows up or whatever the probability weighted numbers are, you still have enough to kind of get by.
1: Yeah. Yeah, um, I had uh, Campbell Faulkner on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I just po- he's kind of my ERCOT grid expert, mm-hmm. and it's, I love listening to him talk because I don't understand a word of it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I kind of I got with him and I said, hey, uh, Russell Gold, the energy reporter for Texas Monthly, yeah. came on the podcast and he was talking about, why don't we interconnect east and west? And let's export power. We export oil, natural gas product, you know, uh, petroleum products, where the world, Texas should be doing that. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. And I'm, Campbell's just like, dude, <laughs> this is going to be an engineering nightmare. Like you've never seen huh. being able to interconnect and it's going to be hard. And so I think just even within ERCOT, being able to connect all these things is going to be, be a huge problem. But, where I guess I was going with that, it's just that imbalance, and you know, how what solves that? Higher price, uh, right? <laughs> ah. But you know, it it, it feels like the two point five percent of of inflation has just got to be more over time, right? Because the the gasoline powered vans Amazon are running around; those are all going to get electrified. Yep, and so. It's going to be, if you're the institution sitting there going, okay, what are inputs into the economy, maybe... It's not going to be oil, or it's always going to be oil, but not as much oil. It's now going to be power, and you got to start thinking about that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So
0: we, th- we think we kind of caught lightning in a bottle here, and we think we've got the right you know, index, the right product, et cetera. And what we did actually is we've got a two-year exclusive on the data and on the index with ICE. So we're the only financial product out there that
1: gives you this exposure. Oh, interesting. For two years. Interesting. I want to go long power. There we go. Oh, very cool. All right. So I think I understand what I bought now. Okay. <laughs> Sorry to drag that, you that, here for no. 45, 45 minutes for, to, That's, to have sold 100 shares to me. But, it uh, goes
0: back to the old mantra, invest and then investigate.
1: Yeah, exactly. We uh, that was always funny. Whenever you uh would buy something from the majors, that was always our deal. Just go ahead and wire the money. We'll do due diligence later. Because yeah. you're, buy- you're buying something that they don't appreciate what they have. Yeah. But uh,
0: yeah, we call it skin in the game. Now I'll pay attention. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. So, okay. So I've I've I think I now understand. I'm glad I made the purchase. <laughs> this is this is kind of good. Yeah. yeah,
0: it's, you know, it's it's not something that you pick up and, you know, if you're going to double your money in three days. No. Right. Okay, you're doing this because you believe fundamentally, like we talked about, there's the arbitrage that occurs on the long-dated uh, financials versus the short-dated fundamentals. You pick it up because you think the electrification of America is going to be massive and the whole supply-demand imbalance and the volatility is going to give you an interesting investment opportunity. You pick it up because... You know, think about the model portfolio, right? So, you know, the guy calls you up, you're an investment advisor and he's like, I want you to be 60% equity, 35% debt and 5% commodities. Well, now it should be, you know, 60, 35, five, but that five should maybe be 2% into electricity because of what the overall impact is. And it should be sticky money. You should have that in there for diversification and inflation protection, and you shouldn't be trying to time the market or flip in and out. It's a really nice fit for a model portfolio.
1: Yeah, because, I i mean, walking away, and I totally made this number up, and I've said it on the podcast, is I think 85% of the money that's invested in energy because they want exposure to oil should be some sort of passive, direct commodity-type exposure. Yeah. And I get the fact you can't go out and trade on the NYMEX, and institutions can't do that, but there needs to be a vehicle Certainly, a better vehicle than the vehicles that exist today. Was that very polite? <laughs> that was a polite way Is that to a say plug it. for True Tracker? Okay? Yeah. The uh, you know, I don't think I've ever. I think I've mentioned True Tracker once on the podcast, but uh, anyway, I'll go ahead and fess up to it. Yeah. So anyway, I had this thought, and I kind of had my Jerry Maguire moment sitting there, <laughs> you know, in front of the computer, and I wrote for twenty four hours, and I created this entity called True Tracker, and it was a better way to get this direct commodity exposure. And then being the cocky little shit that I am, I decided I was going to draft the S1 and not get to talk to an investment bank. So I hire lawyers, I draft the S1, I walk into all the investment banks and go, here's the S1, true tracker, this is the way to play oil. And uh, all the investment banks basically looked at me and said, you're talking about a flow-through entity in the energy business and oil is just at minus 27 and it's at $30 right now. And for the last... Ten or fifteen years, the MLPs have burned the hell out of us. Please go away. Yeah. So I never got it done, but I have a great doorstop. You uh, know, uh, this this S one's pretty big. You know, I, holds the door open.
0: I can't imagine the the bandwidth you burned through trying to write your own S one. That's that's. Oh I, know. The, I don't want to say commendable,
1: but it's impressive. I'll give a I'll give a uh, I'll give a plug to Latham Watkins. They were uh, they were the legal counsel, and they did a really nice. That is the finest S one that. Uh, no one's ever seen because (laughs) (laughs) I guess a couple of people at the SEC saw it. But uh, anyway, yeah, no, but, but no, the, the whole things that came out of that and that's why I appreciate you coming on and let me pick your brain about this because my audience is my LPs and Mm -hmm. and former LPs and, and the like, and just, I've had discussions with them kind of post uh, you know, post getting fired and it's just like, Hey, why don't y'all just have direct commodity exposure And so having commodity exposure, having it more long dated as opposed to the the short term vol, as well as just seeing a huge gap because power is emerging. I mean, it's just going to be bigger, you know, was was really cool. So it was it was really weird when uh, Doug, who introduced us and Doug and I go to church together. Hey, come uh, come grab a beer with this guy. It was kind of funny when when uh, when we got together. So you were kind to come. On the podcast and actually- I appreciate you having me on. Yeah,
0: this, I mean, again, this is an an interesting thing and that's why we created the product because we think that there is a need for it. And, you know, we think that we have this right. Um, We're actually getting a lot of inbound calls where people want us to take the existing commodity indexes and take our piece of the electricity and update and come up with a new product now because the existing commodity indexes haven't been been updated for like 30 years. Yeah, yeah. And so it's kind of difficult to say to somebody, hey, you should own this commodity index, you know, BCOM, GSCI, whatever. And oh, by the way, it doesn't hold the most important commodity in the U.S. Right,
1: exactly. And oh, by the way, it was made before we even had an iPhone.
0: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly, right? Yeah. So, and then we've also done some work on, you know, you talked about the portfolio theory and we've done some work on efficient frontier analysis, et cetera. And because this has good returns over the long term. And because it's less volatile than the other commodity indexes, it gives you a better you know, risk adjusted or a sharp ratio. So when you plot this into like an efficient frontier model, it'll peg you out to say, whatever, however much of this you let me buy, I want this.
1: Oh, interesting. You know, I didn't, I mean, I'm falling down as my job of CIO of the Yates 2008 <laughs> family trust, but uh, I'm sitting here. I mean, it's not. What's it correlated to? I mean, is it- It's correlated to absolutely no debt, no equity,
0: nothing. Right now, um, the only commodity it's correlated to is natural gas. And that correlation is going down over time as you decrease the use of gas for power generation. okay. Yep.
1: No, that makes sense. But it's
0: less volatile because we're doing 12-month strips. So it's got, you know, the correlation right now is, I think we'll say upper 60s maybe to natural gas. Uh, and that's been going down over the past few years. And so we think that's going to fall off. And again, it's it's you give me enough time and some data and I can make it say whatever I want, right? Right, right. But, but um, the correlation looks like if you extrapolate kind of what you're seeing now, it probably drops down and stabilizes it around, we'll say 35 or 40%. Gotcha. So what's
1: the name of the index again?
0: The index is called the ICE, US Carbon Neutral Power Index. And so if you got a Bloomberg, the ticker is ICE, uh, C-N-P-I-T for total return. And then the ETF is the CNIC, which is our company. So it's the CNIC ICE, US carbon neutral power ETF. Gotcha, gotcha. And you, do you have a website? Yeah, the website's www.cnicfunds.com. And what we do is we try to publish a white paper once a month that takes whatever you know, the common questions are that we're getting and puts together a five pager to explain a different topic every month. And we keep it at five, because that's about my attention span. And we've got, I think, six or seven of those up there right now, I'll put one out again. And then we try to do a podcast like yours once a month just to kind of you know, get people comfortable with the idea of what they're looking at. And if you're on that website, there's a little tab up top. It's got Amped, AMPD, which is the ticker, and you click on that and it takes you to the, the prospectus.
1: Cool. Tim, you were awesome to come on. I appreciate you having me. This was fun, Chuck. Absolutely.